know, this is our second session <clears throat> in which we are going to talk about the victory that is possible. Now, you remember this morning we were talking about the description of our victorious Christian life. We looked at, we referred to many verses in the New Testament and we saw a beautiful description of what Christian life is meant to be or the life that God expects each one of us to live. And I made it very clear that that's the only type of life God wants us to live. It is not God's plan for any one of us that we live a defeated, miserable Christian life, be in bad moods and be anxious and worried. That's not God's plan for any one of us. So we saw that that's a life of victory where we experience the triumph of Christ always, everywhere. It's a life in which we do everything without murmuring and complaining. It's a life in which we give thanks to God for everyone and everything. A life in which we are not anxious about anything. A life wherein we forgive others who wrong us. A life in which we love others. A life wherein we rejoice in the Lord always. A life in which we have victory over sin. Now, there is much more in the New Testament, so we just referred to some of the verses that talk about it, and we said it is an abundant life. That's the type of life God wants all of us to enjoy. Now, that was just a description of what kind of a life is presented in the New Testament before us. Now, in this session, we are going to look at how, how we can experience or appropriate that life. The possibility of victory. The possibility of victory. Now, before I go on to that, let me say something very, very important. You remember the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. That's the greatest sermon the world has ever heard. And you remember how the Lord Jesus uh, opened that sermon? What's the first thing he said? He said, blessed are the poor in spirit. And then he said, blessed are they who mourn. <clears throat> and, you know, later as you continue reading, he says, blessed are they who hunger and thirst after righteousness. So it begins with the poverty of spirit. What does it mean to be poor in spirit? What did the Lord mean when he said, Blessed are the poor in spirit. If you are spiritually very poor, you are blessed. Is that what the Lord meant to say? In that case, we are all tremendously blessed, right? All those who are poor spiritually. <laughs> that's, that's probably not the meaning. See, a poor man is one who is conscious of his need. His resources, uh, his uh, 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 standard, the standard before him is very high, but the resources to meet that standard is very low. See, it's like saying, here is a man who has, you know, let's say four or five children, and he needs a lot of money every month to pay the bills and to take care of his family, but his income is very, very low. So we call him a poor man. His need is great, but his 
income or resources to meet that need is very small. We call him a poor man. You know, there are uh, more than one word for poverty in the Greek language. And the word that is used by the Lord Jesus is a very special word. He, I think he chose that word. That word poor used there is a word which means beggarly poor, utterly poor. It's the same word that is used for, you know, that poor man Lazarus. You remember Luke 16, there was a rich man and Lazarus and we read that he was, that there was a poor man. It's the same word. So it is not that he was a little bit poor, but he was utterly poor. He had nothing, no resources, absolutely bankrupt. So a poor man is one who is conscious of his needs. A poor man is one whose needs are great, but resources to meet those needs are small. That's what a poor man is. And the Lord said, blessed are the poor in spirit. That means one who realizes his poverty of spirit. One who looks into himself and says, well, God expects me to live such a, at such a high standard, but I find no power or resource in myself to live that kind of a life. And when he realizes that he has nothing, what does he do? He starts begging. Why do these people beg? Because they don't have. So they tend to depend on others. So apply that in our spiritual life. When you realize your spiritual need, when you realize that you are not able to live a life that is pleasing to God, God's standards are so high, but our ability to meet those standards is very, very low, then you cry out to God for help. You become a beggar. You go to the Lord seeking his help. Lord, you must give me, otherwise I have nothing. That is poverty of spirit. You remember two men who went into the temple to pray in Luke's gospel, a parable Jesus said, that really, you know, pictures the poverty of soul. That uh, publican, that tax collector who went into the temple, now, there was a Pharisee also who went into the temple to pray. But there, you know, if you read carefully, it is written that he prayed to himself. He said these things to himself. And what did he say? He was congratulating himself. He said, God, I thank you that I'm such a wonderful man. I pray, I give tithe, I do this, I do that. Now, in his prayer, there is absolutely no sense of need. That is one remarkable thing in his prayer. He congratulates himself and he doesn't utter a word of dependence on God. Not one word that uh, specifically mentions a need that he has. He doesn't need anything. I have everything. Like the church at Laodicea in the book of Revelation. You remember what was their condition? They said, we have everything. We are all right. Nothing wrong with us. At the same time, the Lord said they were miserable, poor, naked, etc., but when that uh, publican came in to pray, you know, he had a very short prayer. The Pharisee's prayer was a very long prayer. But when the publican came in to pray, his prayer was very short, only one sentence. Oh God, have mercy upon me. If you look into that publican's heart, what you see there is poverty of spirit. If you don't understand the explanation for poverty of spirit, 
All right, don't worry about the explanation. You just look into that publican's heart. What do you see there? As he stands there, he says, Oh God, I stand in great need. I need your mercy. I need your help. I have nothing. See, that attitude, that attitude where you realize your poverty, where you realize your need, and as a result you cry out to God. That attitude is called poverty of spirit. That is followed by mourning huh? in the Sermon on the Mount. What do you mourn over? You mourn over your unchristlikeness. When you see that there is so much defeat in your personal life, there is no victory, there is no triumph, then you mourn over your failures. And that leads later to hungering and thirsting after righteousness. I mentioned that this morning. So, before we talk about the possibility of victory, I think this is a condition that God demands from us. We need to come to that point, as we concluded the last session, I made a mention of that. You need to come to that point where you realize that your life is not matching up with the standard that God has placed before you. And you see your need. Lord, I am not living that type of a life that you want me to live. I stand in great need. I want your help. You know, that heart condition is a prerequisite for experiencing victory. I've heard of a Sunday school teacher who taught his students in the Sunday school about this parable of the publican and the uh, of, um, a Pharisee who went into the temple to pray. And the teacher said he prayed, the Pharisee prayed a wrong prayer because he said, I thank you that I'm not like the publican. That's not how we should pray. But at the close of the Sunday school, when the teacher prayed, she said, Lord, we thank you that we are not like the Pharisee. It's exactly the same thing, right? It's exactly the same thing. And one little boy in the Sunday school, he made a note of it. When he went home that evening, in their family prayer, family altar at home, his turn came to pray. And he prayed, Lord, I thank you that I am not like my Sunday school teacher. <laughs> See, it's exactly the same thing. Huh? Everyone's saying the same thing. That affects us also. Lord, I thank you that I am better than my brother sitting next to me. I am better than my wife. I am better than that brother or sister. Well, if that is our attitude, if we compare ourselves with others, then we will... You know, that will never help us in our spiritual life. God doesn't want us to compare ourselves with anyone. Our comparison is only with this book. You see the standards God has laid down in his word. You may be better than many people in the world. But that means nothing before God. When you are weighed in God's balance, are you found wanting? That's a question. When we are weighed... In God's balance, where do we stand? Do we meet God's standards? So, before we talk about victory, the first prerequisite for victory is a heart attitude that acknowledges our need. A mourning over our failures and a desire, intense desire in our heart, longing after God, longing after righteousness. Longing after a life that pleases God. Now before I go on, let me uh, frankly ask you this. 
do you have an intense desire in your heart to live a life pleasing to god is that your greatest desire i'm not asking you if you are living a life right now that's absolutely pleasing to god now the answer for many of us may be not exactly that's not my question but do you have a desire an intense desire an insatiable hunger <clears throat> for god and his things oh god above everything else in my life i want to live a life pleasing to you as a family we want to serve you we want to please you <clears throat> we want to accomplish your purposes for our life we want to live that kind of a life that you have planned designed for us do you have a real desire for that a real longing for that blessed are they who have that longing who hunger and thirst after righteousness you know i have uh, noticed something in that in that verse matthew 5 6 see hungering and thirsting after the same thing see like in english we don't say i'm i'm thirsty for food we say i'm thirsty for water and hungering after food but here the lord said hunger and thirst for the same thing that is to show the intensity of your desire it is not casually desiring your hungering and thirsting for the same thing so before we go on let us ask this question do i have a genuine desire longing in my heart an intense desire in my heart to live a life pleasing to god is that my highest desire or is making money my my focus in life or becoming great in the world in my career in my profession or in any other field is that the greatest thing or pleasing god is the greatest thing so if our heart is conditioned with the poverty of spirit with a spirit of mourning and also if our heart longs for a life that pleases god longing for victory longing to live a life that is really pleasing to god if that is the desire of your heart i want to tell you there is hope for you now some of you honestly i hope you did this exercise in your heart and you came up with the answer no this is not my greatest desire and just be honest before god you don't have to tell me i i want to live a good life but uh, i cannot say that that's my greatest desire well for you let me say something are you at least willing to tell the lord that you are you are willing to be made willing did you get that lord when i look into my heart i don't see that this is my greatest desire i cannot honestly say that i have so many other things in my agenda and you know pleasing god is one of them but i am willing to be made willing lord i want to come to that point where i long for thee with all my heart i haven't come to that point that's not my greatest desire now but i am willing to be made willing to come to that point where i would seek after you with all my heart you know victory is reserved only for those who really want it You know this morning I think Georgie made a mention of a great truth. You know what that is? Salvation is absolutely free. 
It is something that God does. You don't do a thing in salvation. It's a free gift. But sanctification or spiritual growth or spiritual progress, God looks for your cooperation. You will never become holier in your life without your cooperation. God will never make you holier. I mean practical in practical life. God will never make you holier without your consent. He will never do a work of sanctification in you by force. Oh, you've got to be holy. Come on. He will never do that. He will do that only if you say, Lord, I want it. You know, in Hindi there is a word, Jabardasti. That is by force. God will never make you holier, Jabardasti, by force. He needs your consent. He needs your yielding. He needs your cooperation. He needs a willing heart. So before we talk about victory, let's, let's prepare the ground. You need to have an attitude where you realize the poverty of your spirit, where you are willing to cry out to God to really help you. And as I said, if you haven't reached there, at least tell the Lord, Lord, I am willing to be made willing. Right now, that's not my greatest desire, but I would like to come to that point where you can make me willing. All right. Now, what is this victory based on? This victory is based only on what God has promised in his word. We believe this victory is possible only because God has promised that it is possible. You know, we looked at many verses this morning where Paul said, Triumph always everywhere. I want to draw your attention to a beautiful verse in Romans chapter 6. I made a mention of that verse this morning. Romans chapter 6 and verse 14. It says, For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under the law, but under grace. Now that grace is available, here is a promise. Sin shall not have dominion over you. You know, putting it in simple words, it says, Sin will not have mastery, rulership over your life, because you are no more under the law, but under grace. Grace is available to all of us today, and therefore, we can experience tremendous victory. So, it is when we receive the grace of God. You know, what's the meaning of grace? Now, all of us know one meaning of grace, I'm sure. You know, Ephesians 2, grace. That is, by grace we are saved. What is meant there? There, it is the unmerited favor that God bestows upon sinners. That is called saving faith. But that's not the only meaning of grace in the New Testament. There are other shades of meaning. Another shade uh, is, grace is God's enablement. God helping you to do something that you cannot do in your own power. That's the meaning of grace. Not just the unmerited favor God bestows upon a sinner. Well, as far as our salvation is concerned, that is what grace means. We, have all, we were all saved by grace. God bestowed upon us the unmerited favor that we never deserve. But in Christian life, for example, in 2 Corinthians 12, when Paul prayed thrice that the thorn in his flesh might be removed, the Lord said, my grace is sufficient for thee. What's the meaning of grace there? 
See the very next sentence explains what it means. You remember that verse? My grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. So their grace means the strength of God that is made perfect in our weakness. The enabling power of God. That's the meaning of grace there. God enabling you to accomplish or do something that you cannot do in your own power. That is grace. Uh, that's a, 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 a help that God gives you to accomplish or to do what you cannot do in your own strength. So I want to begin there. How is victory possible? Victory is possible based on the promise, promises God has given us in his word. Sin shall not have dominion over us. And there are so many other verses that, uh, verses we referred to this morning, that describe the type of Christian life God wants each one of us to live. Now, how can we live that kind of a life? You know, this morning we looked at Matthew 5 where the Lord said, Love your enemies. Who can do that? I can't do that. You can't do that. None of us can do that in our own power. It is only when the Lord enables us, when he gives us that grace, that power, supernatural strength, only then can we obey those commandments. But there is good news for all of us. You know, if God commands something, if God plans something for us, he will give us the ability to do that. He will give us, he will make it possible. You remember in, Matthew, in John chapter 5, you read of a man who was sick there for 38 years. He was lying there. And the Lord said, take up your bed and walk. That's exactly what he could not do for 38 years, right? Why is he there? Because he cannot take up his bed and walk. That's why he's there. But the Lord is asking him to do something absolutely impossible. If he could take up his bed and walk, he would not have been lying there. He would have gone home and played football, right? That is what he would have been doing. But he is lying there because he cannot get up and walk. But the Lord Jesus came and said, come on, take up your bed and walk. That sounds something impossible. He cannot do that. But this is the good news. When the Lord commanded him or asked him to get up, and take up his bed and walk, along with that commandment came the grace or the strength to take up his bed and walk. If the Lord ever asks you to take up your bed and walk, he will also give you the grace to take up your bed and walk. Otherwise, that command is absolutely meaningless. It doesn't make any sense. Here is a man who cannot walk and you ask him to walk. What sense does it make? But when the Lord said, come on, take up your bed and walk, along with that command, he supplied the power, the strength, the supernatural ability, the strength to his feet, to his limbs to get up and walk. It is always like that. When the scripture says, rejoice in the Lord always. We are living in this world full of problems. How can anyone rejoice always? Well, when the Lord says rejoice in the Lord always, he will give you the grace to rejoice. You can choose to rejoice even in the worst situations of life. See, I have a friend of mine in some place in the world, some part of the world. He is passing through 
a young fellow passing through such a severe trial that i don't know if anyone else among the believers are passing through you know people have cancer some people have faced death in their family and all that we can understand it but this friend of mine is passing through something terrible i just cannot tell you what it is i don't know of any other person who is passing through such such a situation young fellow we are always in touch but you know one thing that really surprises me though he is passing through such a deep valley of sorrow not for a day or two he has been you know going on in that situation for years now we see no light at the end of the tunnel we hope one day light will come but it has not yet come even after many years but every time he sends me uh, not every time most of the times when he sends me a whatsapp or an email message you know he talks about the grace that he is experiencing in his heart the special joy that god gives him in spite of this terrible trial that he is passing through that shows that christianity works it is real he is not disappointed even after being in this condition for many years he is still rejoicing in the lord the lord is comforting him he is he is depending on the lord he receives grace from god every day so what i'm trying to say is when the lord says rejoice he will give you the grace to do that otherwise there's no point in that commandment so what's the basis of victory the basis of victory is the word of god the promise god has given us that we can have victory sin shall not have dominion over you jealousy need not rule over your life anxiety need not rule over your life you don't need to be defeated by anger or by lust or by dirty thoughts god can give you victory that's a promise we have in the scriptures and when god commands us to do something he will also give us the grace to do it so it is by grace don't forget the meaning of grace the special ability supernatural power god gives us it is by that grace that we can experience victory in all areas of our life you know in ephesians chapter 3 and verse 18 in a prayer that paul prays for the believers in ephesus you know he talks about spiritual strength huh in ephesians 3:16 you know this is just one sentence from his prayer for the believers in ephesus he says that they may be strengthened with might by his spirit in the inner man Ephesians 3:16 did you see that Paul is praying that the believers is writing from prison of course he's praying while he was in prison he's praying that the believers in Ephesus may be strengthened with might see strength and might mean the same thing but he's using two words for strength i think that is for emphasis that they may be not just strengthened a little bit casually no strengthened with might by his spirit in the inner man that is what we are talking about god can strengthen us by might in the inner man what is this inner man in second corinthians 4:16 paul talks about the outer man and the inner man 
Second uh, Corinthians 4.16. You read it later. The outer man is perishing, but the inner man is being renewed day by day. So outer man is that part of man with which we relate to things material. That's our body. The inner man is that part of man by which or with which you relate to things spiritual. You relate to God. That's the inner man. The spiritual part of man. That's the inner man. And here Paul is praying that they may be strengthened in the inner man. That is our greatest need today. All of us need to become strong inside. That's a good prayer to pray for us and for others. So we need to become strong inside. That is, we need to gain spiritual strength to have victory over sin, to handle temptations and difficulties and problems and, you know, uh, all those things that come on our way. And here, there's one more thing, strengthen with might by His Spirit. It is by the Spirit of God that we become strong inside. So we talked about the grace of God, the strengthening power of God, the enabling power of God, the supernatural divine power that God supplies. That is grace. And how do we get that? Here it says, by His Spirit. So how do you become strong spiritually? How can you have victory in your life? By His Spirit. What does that mean? It is as you yield to the control of the Holy Spirit in your day-to-day life that you begin to experience that strength and experience victory in your life. So yielding to the working of the Spirit of God in your life. When the Spirit prompts you, when the Spirit sheds light on your way, you yield to that, you submit to that. So by strengthened by his spirit means you become strong as you obey the promptings of the Holy Spirit in your life. As the spirit guides you, as the spirit sheds light on your path, as the spirit leads you, you yield to it. You choose the way of the spirit. You choose the prompting of the spirit over everything else. You know, let me just give you a very, maybe a crude example. You know, the Spirit of God is given to us to lead us and to guide us and to prompt us eh, to take the right direction. Now, you, you, let's say you come to the church and here is a brother or sister who has said something bad about you or who has spread rumors about you, for example. Huh? Uh, things that are not true. And you, you happen to see that brother or sister whom you don't like huh, because of something that he or she has done. And your flesh says, don't look at him. Don't shake hands with him. Don't smile at him. Because he has done something against you. But the spirit says, I mean the spiritual part, the Holy Spirit says, come on, forgive him. He may have done in ignorance, not knowing the facts. That is something between him and God. That's not something between you and him. That is something between him and God. As far as you are concerned... You as a Christian, you are supposed to forgive him. You are supposed to show love to him. Come on, smile at him. Shake hands with him. You see, the spirit is prompting you to do that. But then what do you do? You obey the flesh or the spirit? 
We know the answer, right? Huh? Very often we obey what the flesh prompts us to do. And very seldom, sad to say, we obey what the spirit prompts us to do. So, when you yield to the prompting of the spirit every day in all situations of life, then you gain spiritual strength. Every time you yield to the prompting of the flesh, you lose whatever spiritual strength you have. You become weaker spiritually. But when you, when you obey the prompting of the Holy Spirit, then you become strong. I've read about a man uh, who was a dog trainer. I forget his name. He was a dog trainer. And uh, he was a drunkard and a, 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 a man who lived a very righteous kind of, you know, bad kind of life. But he got saved, gloriously saved. And people knew him as a, as a terrible man before his conversion. But after he was saved, people found that he is growing fast in his spiritual life. And they found that he is getting victory pretty soon over all his bad habits. And he is having a life of victory. Remarkable. And there were Christians in their assembly who were Christians for ages. You know, born and brought up in Christian homes. And they, they felt sort of jealous of him. Because this man who came from a non-Christian background and who, who, who was just saved just the other day eh, from a very dirty background, how he is living such an exemplary Christian life. So one of the men had asked him, hey, we were born and brought up in Christian homes and we don't experience this victory that you experience. And uh, how come that you, you have such a victorious life? Oh, he said, I'll tell you that. You know, I told you he was a dog trainer. He said, you know, he gave a lesson from training the dogs. He said, you know, these dogs that are being trained for fighting are not supposed to eat bones for some reason. Uh, they are not supposed to eat bones. But they love bones. You know that, right? They love bones. So when I take my dog for a, for a walk along the street, there are so many, you know, uh, pieces of uh, bones here and there. And this dog really wants to eat that. So when I take my dog for a walk and uh, if he sees a piece of bone there, you know, he, he pulls the string. Huh? He is inclined to it. His heart loves it. And, but he knows that he is not supposed to do that. He is trained not to take that. But he wants to. So he pulls his master to this side. But then he looks up to the master to see what he is going to say. Whether he will let him do that or not. Then this trainer will say, no, no. Then he, you know, he walks along the trainer. And after maybe five minutes, he finds another piece of bone. Same temptation, you know, poor thing. And he, he wants to lick that or uh, take a bite. But then he knows that's not permitted. Then he'll again look up to the trainer. And the trainer will say, no, no, you're not supposed to do that. Then he listens again. And he said, that's what I'm doing now, you know, in, in my Christian life. When I am tempted to do something that I'm not supposed to do, you know, my old habits, my old practices, they still continue to have a pull on me. But I listen to the prompting of the Spirit that says no, then I, I turn away. Even when I'm tempted to do something wrong, I listen to the prompting of the Spirit 
And that is how I experience victory in my Christian life. So, this bulldog trainer, he has a lesson for us also. Huh? The New Testament teaches, it is by the help of the Holy Spirit that we get victory. It is when you choose God and the prompting of the Spirit over everything else in our daily life that you begin to experience victory. In every temptation, you know, there is a choice whether you should choose God or the pleasure of sin. In every temptation that is there, even in gossiping, you know, uh, we usually don't think that gossiping is a sin, right? Especially I don't think Malayalis consider gossiping as a sin. Huh? So, but gossiping is a sin, speaking ill of others huh? when they are absent, you know, with an intention to malign their name. That's a sin. So, here is a possibility for a ju juicy bit of gossip. Huh? Oh, you get some bad news about somebody and you want to talk about it in detail. And then the spirit says, no. Then what do you do? Huh? Remember bulldog trainer. Do you turn away from it and say, no, I'm not going to talk about it. I'm not going to enjoy that, you know, little bit of pleasure that I gain by gossiping about somebody. So if you choose God, over everything else in your daily life decisions, you will become strong spiritually. This is a sentence that has really helped me. Choose God in all situations of life. When there is a choice between God and something else, always choose God. Or in other words, how do you choose God? By, choosing the, by obeying the prompting of the Holy Spirit. So, Paul prays that the believers in Ephesus may be strengthened by the Spirit in the inner man. So, we experience victory, we appropriate victory only when we become strong in our inside. Strong inside. Strong in the inner man. So, you receive the grace of God as you yield to the promptings of the Spirit of God in your day-to-day -day life. And then you become stronger inside. And when you are enabled by the Spirit of God, you will experience victory. You know, in Hebrews 13, there is a great truth in Hebrews 13 and the last uh, uh, verses, 20, uh, not last, 20 and 21. You know, this we usually use as words of benediction at the end of a meeting or at the end of a function. Uh, Hebrews 13, 20, 21. Now the God of peace that brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant. Now listen to this. Make you perfect. In some translations it says accomplish. Or in the modern translation I think it says produce. Uh, make you perfect in every good work. To do his will, working in you that which is well-pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Well, that sounds like a very complicated sentence, right? So let me just simplify it in the, in the modern, modern language. See, this verse says that God working in you will produce in you. Produce is accomplish or make perfect. That which is well-pleasing in his sight. See, when the New Testament talks about 
God working in you. You know, in verse 21, did you see that? God working in you. It generally refers to the work of the Holy Spirit. How does God work in us today? It is through His Spirit that He works in us today. So, through the Holy Spirit, God will accomplish in us, or I'm using another word, you know, I think it is in, if I remember right, in, living, in the Living Bible, paraphrase, this is the word used if I'm not wrong. Produce. Huh? God working in you, God, the Holy Spirit, will produce in you that which is pleasing in His sight. What is it that pleaseth God most? Huh? This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. So, the character of the Lord Jesus Christ, that is what God is most pleased in. There's nothing that pleases God the Father more than His Son. So, let us put it all together. God the Holy Spirit produces the character of God's Son in us. That is what God accomplishes in us. That's the greatest work God is doing. So if you can think of your heart as a factory, huh? your heart is the factory. And the production manager is the Holy Spirit. He is the one who is working. And the product is that which is pleasing to him. That is Christ-likeness. Character of Christ. So my heart is the factory. God the Holy Spirit is the production manager. And the ultimate product is the character of Christ. So... Holy Spirit is seeking to produce the character of Christ in my life. Well, if production took, should take place, there should be no strike and no garavo in the factory. Right? You agree with me? But why is the Holy Spirit not able to, you know, bring out production in our life? Very often the reason is we don't cooperate with the production manager. We don't obey his promptings. We don't listen to him. We don't yield to him. Therefore, he wants to produce the character of Christ in each one of us. But he is not able to do that because we don't cooperate. We don't listen to him. Let me show you another verse. A verse that Georgie referred to this morning. In Philippians chapter 2, in the opening remarks, he, made a, he read this passage. Uh, this is a verse that I love. In Philippians 2 and verse 13, it, is says, it says, For it is God which worketh in you, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. This is a similar verse, what we read in Hebrews 13. This is similar. God is at work in you. I said, it's the Holy Spirit working in us. God at work in us, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. What's the meaning of that? To will means he gives you the willingness and to do means he gives you the ability. So, God is at work in you to will and to do means God will give you the ability, uh, to, the desire and also the ability to do his good pleasure. That's wonderful. It is God working in me. It is not me trying in my own self-effort, you know, to get rid of my anger or to have victory over lust or have victory over dirty thoughts or have victory over evil imaginations. It is not in my own strength. I am not, 
It is not my own effort. It is God working in me. He gives me the desire to live a holy life. You know, when you are saved, God gives you the desire. I hope you have that desire. If you are a truly saved child of God, you will definitely have a desire to live a life pleasing to God. You will have a hatred for sin and a desire to live a godly life. That's an inborn thing. That is something God puts inside of you the moment you are saved. An unbeliever may not have this. But this is one remarkable evidence that you are truly born again. This is something very important. How do you know you are born again? There are many, many tests that you can apply to. One of them is, you will have an inherent hatred towards sin and love for righteousness. Do you have that? I'm not asking you if you ever sinned or not. That's not my question. Do you, is there a change of attitude towards sin? If you are truly born again, there will be a change of attitude towards sin. That is, you will have a natural inclination. I should not say natural, maybe a supernatural inclination to that which is good and a hatred for that which is evil. I know that in my life. I hate to get angry, but I do get angry sometimes, but I don't like it. I don't appreciate it. I hate ang getting angry. But sometimes I may be falling. That's a different thing. I hate to tell lies. I don't want to tell even a small lie. Why? Because I'm a child of God. That desire is in my heart. I'm sure that I'm saved. Because my attitude to sin has changed. I may not have perfect victory over lying. There may be times when I, I may tell a lie. But my attitude to lying has changed. Do you have that change in your heart? If you say you are a child of God, is there a hatred towards that which is evil and a love for that which is good? That's very important. You know, I don't know if you are familiar with the name Paul Washer. Are you familiar? Some of you are. You know, Paul Washer, in one of his messages, he says something very, uh, very meaningful. It really meant a lot to me. He said he was preaching in an open air meeting in some place. Hmm? He was preaching in an open air meeting. And then there was a drunkard listening to him. Then that drunkard came around. Eh, listening to this message, he came close to the preacher. And he said, Hallelujah, praise the Lord, brother. The drunkard is shouting. Then Paul Washer said, You are a liar. Oh, then he felt very hurt, this drunkard. He said, Sir, why did you say I'm a drunkard? Uh, I'm a liar. Is it because... I have drunk a little bit. Is that the reason why you called me, a, called me a liar? And Paul Washer said, no, that's not the reason. It is not because you, you, you are a bit drunk that I called you a liar. He said, I called you a liar because after being drunk, you are saying, hallelujah, praise the Lord. That is why I called you a liar. You understand the meaning of that? His attitude to sin has not changed. He is rejoicing in his sin. That shows that deep work has not been accomplished in his life. See, brothers and sisters, we may still have failures in our life. We are not perfect. But has there been a real change of attitude to sin in our life? Do I hate sin and love righteousness? You know, in Psalm 45, there is a verse that is quoted in the book of Hebrews in connection with the Lord Jesus. It says, he hated iniquity and loved righteousness. 
Therefore, thy God has anointed him with the oil of gladness. You know that verse? So, there will be a hatred for sin and a love for righteousness in the heart of a believer. So, that is one way to know whether you have truly been saved or not. Has there been a change in your life, in your attitude to sin? All right, let's come back to what we were saying. So, to will and to do means God will give you the desire for things that are pleasing to God. He will give you, He will implant that desire in you. That is to will. And to do means the ability. So, God will give you both the desire to live a victorious life and also the ability to live that kind of a life. That ability is called grace. So, as I said, victory is based on the promises in God's word that promises victory, that promises that sin shall not have dominion over us and that victory becomes ours by the grace of God. It is only as God strengthens us by his grace, by his strength, the strength that God supplies When you appropriate that strength, you can experience victory. And you can appropriate that strength only as you yield to the prompting of the Holy Spirit. There is one more very, very important factor in victory. So some of the things we said, one is the promise in God's word. Another thing is grace of God, that is the strengthening power of God. Another thing we said, yielding to the power of the Holy Spirit in our day-to-day life. And one more very important thing, that is faith. It's very important to believe that it is possible to live a life of victory. I think many people have, you know, settled down to a sort of thinking that, well, this is all that is possible. I don't think I can rejoice always. I don't think I can have victory over anger. I don't think I can, you know, love people who do wrong things against me. See, they have settled down to that. They don't believe that God can give them victory. You remember a a blind man who came to the Lord and the Lord asked him, what do you want me to do for you? He said, Lord, I want healing. I want to see. And the Lord said, according to your faith, be it unto you. So he believed that the Lord can heal him on both his eyes. Suppose this blind man thought for a while and said, well, Lord, I know it is too much to ask you to heal both eyes. Um, It is all right if you heal one eye. You know, asking too much is not good. So, can you heal one eye? And the Lord says, all right, be it unto you according to your faith, be it unto you. He'll go home with one eye open. Do you believe that God can open both eyes? If you have, let's say, five diseases, how many of them you want to be healed from? So here is a man with TB and he has cancer and he has backache and he has stomach problem, four or five diseases. And you come to your doctor and he asks you, do you want to be healed of all of them? What will you say? Oh, doctor, it's too much to ask you to heal all of them. If you can just get rid of at least one of them. Is that what you're going to say? No. We want to get rid of all that is, you know, uh, destroying us. That ruins our life. So when you come to the Lord, you must believe that God is able to give us victory. Hebrews 6.11, you know, uh, Hebrews 11.6, you know what that verse says? 
he who comes to god should believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him that is what you read in hebrews 11 and verse 6 but in verse uh, 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 the first part of that verse says without faith it is impossible to please him without faith it is impossible to please god and what should you believe you should believe that god is god exists he is there to help you and that he will reward all those who diligently seek him without that faith it is impossible to 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 please him so how is victory possible you must come to a point where you realize the poverty of your spirit where you long for victory and a point where you believe yes god is able to give me victory why do you believe like that because the word of god promises that see faith is a very important word as well as we christians are concerned faith is not just believing your feelings that is not faith you know this is one area where many christians make a mistake they feel something and they have strong confidence in that that is not faith you know some of these charismatic preachers they say you close your eyes and you visualize what type of a car you want bmw all right tell god the color light blue lord all right you believe that you're going to have it where is it written in the bible that you will get bmw where is that verse there's no such verse that is not faith that is called nonsense that is not called faith you see you imagine something in your mind and you have strong faith in that that is not faith you know what faith is faith is believing that god will fulfill his promise that is faith if a man with no hair on his head bald headed man hmm? if he is praying fasting and praying for 40 days that he might have hair on his head with real faith he is praying lord i want to i want my hair i had to be full of hair i think he is just wasting his time don't waste time like that because there is no promise in the word that god will give you hair on your head your faith has no basis The Bible says God will give you a glorified body that's going to happen much later. There's no promise to 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 base your faith on. So faith is always based on the promises of God. What God has promised, he is able to accomplish. Now, this is not just what I am saying. Look into the scripture. That is what the scripture clearly says. Look at Romans chapter 4. You know, we we read about the faith of abraham all of us call abraham the father of faith what did he what is his faith all about in he in romans chapter 4 verse 20 he staggered not at the promise of god through unbelief but was strong in faith giving glory to god and being fully persuaded verse 21 that what he had promised he was able also to perform that is faith what god has promised he is able to perform that is called faith so what is faith you believe that what god has promised he will fulfill that is faith you know it's very interesting abraham's former name his earlier name was abram you know that what's the meaning of abram 
Abraham means a great father. That's a meaning. A great man. Great father. God changed his name into Abraham. Abraham means father of many children. Okay? But the interesting thing is, God changed that name even before he got even one child. So, let us uh, walk into Abraham, uh, uh, not Abraham, Abraham's tent. Ah, uh, sorry, Abraham's tent. Okay? Sir, we, uh, what's your name, sir? My name is Abraham. Oh, father of many children. So, where are all the kids? They've gone to school or where are they? No, I don't have any. But the, your name says father of many children. What will Abraham say? Well, I don't have any now. But God has promised that I'm going to have a child. And of course, you know, many of them, God has promised. See, that is faith. At this point, he doesn't have even one child. But his name is father of many children. Does it make any sense? Yes, it does make sense. Though I don't have uh, even a single child now, God has promised that I'm going to have children. I believe that. That is faith. And he continued to believe and he gave glory, he gave glory to God. You know, in Genesis uh, 15, there is a very interesting scenario. In Genesis 15, God one day asked Abraham to come out in verse 5. And he said, come on Abraham, look up and... Uh, your seed is going to be like the one that you see up there. Okay? Uh, look toward heaven and tell the uh, stars, count the stars. You're going to be able to, are you able to number them? You're not able to number them, but so shall your seed be. God said you're going to have so many children. <clears throat> and verse 6, uh, Genesis 15, 6 says, And he believed in the Lord. See, that is like an explanation. In the original, in, in the Hebrew Bible, it says, when he said you're going to have so many children, Abraham said, Amen. That's how it is in the original Bible, in the Hebrew Bible. So that is explained here in our translations. He believed in the Lord. So instead of he believed in the Lord, the literal translation is, when God said you're going to have so many children, as the stars in the sky, Abraham said, Amen. That means he believed what God said. So in order to experience victory, we, when the Bible says, sin shall not have dominion over you, what shall we say? Amen. That's going to happen in my life. I'm going to prove that in my life. When it says you can live a life where you rejoice always, you say, Amen. When you say you're going to love your enemies, you say, Amen, I'm going to do that. In my own power, I cannot do that now. But receiving the grace of God, I will be able to do that. Let me just uh, quote one more example before I close. Our time is gone, sorry. Let me just finish with this. You know, when uh, you, we have no time to read it, you can read it later. In Numbers chapter 13, Moses sent out spies to spy the land of Canaan. They came back and reported that giants are dwelling there, we can never possess that land. Uh, they are huge. We just cannot have victory. But Joshua and Caleb, they said, if the Lord is pleased with us, we can go and possess the land. Why did they say like that? Because that is what God had promised to their fathers. You remember in Exodus 3, 
God came down and told Moses, I'm going to, I've seen the affliction of the people. I'm going to take them from this land and take them to a land flowing with milk and honey. That is God's promise. It is not Joshua and Caleb imagining that God will take us to the promised land. No, that is God's promise. So they said, God has promised it. He will definitely help us to have it. But all the rest of the crowd, they said, no. There are giants there. They are too big for us to have, you know, victory over. So uh, you can imagine like this. When these people went on, you know, to spy the land, uh, as they were going through the junctions and streets of Canaan, they saw this huge giant standing there. So one of those giants, let's call him Jealousy, okay? Mr. Jealousy is standing there. And uh, he is looking at this little fellow. Hey, why are you here? You think you can have victory over us? No, sir, uh, we don't think. We just came to, as tourists, just to see the land. We, we don't think we can ever have victory over you. Then there, another giant stands in the next street corner called Anger. Hey, why are you staring at us? You're going to defeat us? No, sir, I don't think we can defeat you. All right. So they go back and say, there are so many giants there called Anger, Jealousy. You know, they are all giants that dwell in our flesh. And very often we say, he just cannot have victory. But Joshua and Caleb, they say no. Not because we are too strong, but because the Lord is with us. So victory is possible because, not because we are too strong, but only because God has promised it in his word. And receiving his help and his grace, as we yield to the prompting of the spirit of God, we can experience that victory. So as we now conclude, how many of us can say, Amen. This is what the word says, and God is able to help me. You remember Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That's in a different context, but that can be applied, that principle can be applied to our context also. Is victory possible? Yes. Why do we say it is possible? Because God has promised it. And how is it possible? By God giving me his grace, his supernatural strength that enables me to have victory over any giant. Maybe jealousy or anger or lust or whatever. God can give me so much strength that I can have victory over all of them. So if you exercise your faith and believe that God can give you victory, and if you keep yielding your, your, uh, uh, yourself to the prompting of the Spirit of God in your daily life, leaning upon the grace of God, you will experience victory in an increasing measure. You may not have victory over everything overnight, but you will have victory in an increasing measure. May God bless these words to us. Be honest with God, and God will surely help you. Shall we pray? Our Father, we are excited this evening at the thought that victory is possible, not in our own strength. As Paul said, in my flesh dwelleth no good thing. We can never accomplish anything good in our own strength. But we thank you that it is possible to have victory because you have promised it. Thy spirit works both to will and to do. You give us the desire and you also give us the ability. And therefore we can have victory. Lord, may we all be able to say amen to thy promises and not stagger 
stagger in unbelief, but give glory to you by believing that you are able to perform what you have promised. Lord, may this be our experience in the days to come. Give us victory in all areas of our life. We thank you for the opportunity to consider these wonderful truths. Lord, we are excited. We are delighted. We rejoice in our spirit and we give glory to you. We thank you, Lord, for uh, giving us the grace to talk about these things. We pray that these things may be absolutely true in all areas of our lives. We offer this prayer in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.